Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone, but you have sent your Son into the world to be the ruler of all and to restore by his rule right and order. And we thank you that you have shared uh, with us the good news of his coming and his reign uh, through his gospel. Uh, We pray that you would help me now to teach it truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it, to understand it, to believe it, uh, so that we would know the joy and peace of worshipping the true King, our Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, Who is in charge? Who has authority uh, matters. Uh, Most of the time, if you're like me, we try and live just getting on with our own business and not thinking about who has authority and power in our country about the business of government. But, of course, the disruption of our lives by the decisions of government changed holidays, testing and isolation, inability to work, confined to our homes or locked out of our state, has reminded us that there actually is authority in human society and it really does matter who has the authority, the power. And those authorities are important because they have also a responsibility to protect us and uphold the law. Their decisions determine how we live where we can go, how much of our income is taken in tax. At other times, their decisions can send you to war. Who is in charge of our state and country matters. But more important is who is in charge of our world, who has ultimate authority over our lives. Now, in ancient times, the person who had authority who was in charge was the king, and his was complete authority. Ancient kings were far more powerful than any modern Australian politician or bureaucrat. You know, they did decide how much tax you paid. Uh, They controlled the army, for they were responsible for protecting their country, but they were also at the head of their judiciary, the final judge in all matters. They had the power of life and death over their citizens. Power and authority belonged to the king, and their citizens owed them honour and obedience. And what we have in Matthew 2 is a tale of two kings. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Two kings. In fact, what we have is a contrast of two authorities. And as we look at that contrast, remember who has authority over our lives can make the difference between peace and chaos, life and death. So there's King Herod and then there's the one born king of the Jews. The text invites us to compare them, to see which is the better king, whose rule we would want and must live under. So there is King Herod. Now, there were a few Herods, but this Herod is the one called Herod the Great who ruled Palestine from 37 BC until his death in 4 BC. He was the father of Herod Antipas who ruled Galilee during the period of 
Jesus' ministry. Now, even though Herod was king over the Jews, he actually wasn't a descendant of David. He wasn't even a full Jew, but an Idumean, someone descended from Esau. And Herod was called great because his reign was, for those days, long. And that brought stability to Palestine in the tumultuous years of the Roman Civil War. And he was a consistently loyal friend and client of Rome. He enlarged the nation. He was a great builder. He founded new cities, rebuilt Caesarea, and especially he enlarged and beautified the temple in Jerusalem. So he was a can-do king. But to fund all this, he levied heavy taxes, which means he had plenty of opportunity to display another feature of his rule. Herod allowed no dissent and punished any disloyalty brutally. He was passionate about the security of his reign. For example, he took vengeance on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, when he came to power because they'd supported another claimant to the throne. Oh, he persecuted the Pharisees for opposing his introduction of pagan practices to Jerusalem. But it was probably his family who suffered most. In the course of his life, because of his suspicion that he, they might be plotting against him, he had, and you might, if you've got fingers, you might want to keep a list, all right? He'd execute an uncle, a mother-in-law, two brothers-in-law, a wife strangled in a fit of rage who was entirely innocent, and three sons, the last one only five days before his own death. The Emperor Augustus is reported to have said that because of Herod's desire not to offend the religious scruples of the Jewish people, it was better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. He was, a he was a man determined to hold on to power. And so he found the news that the Magi, those wise men from the east of a king, he found the news that they brought very disturbing. He was trouble. See, a king descended from David's a potential rival that threatened the legitimacy and security of his reign. Even though Herod had real power, he sits on a throne, he could summon experts, send troops, he lived in fear. Fear of dispossession, fear of his rule being ended. So he was active to meet and destroy this threat. And to do that, he was willing, as we heard, to lie and murder. He questions the wise men carefully, deceiving them by the claim that he too wanted to come and worship him, acknowledge this baby as the God-given king. In reality, he was even then seeking to find out the identity and location of this baby-born king so that he could kill him, remove him as a threat to himself and his rule. And that becomes clear in verse 16. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under. Unable to find out from the wise men the details, he uses what he's already learned from them about the time of the appearance of the star to make sure that this boy, this child, would not survive. Now that probably meant, based on estimates of the population of Bethlehem at the time, killing somewhere between 12 and 20 under two-year-olds. But Herod did not hesitate. The security of his reign and person were much more important to him. So here's a king, a builder, 
a long and stable reign, a lover of his own power, who would lie and murder. A king who claims he has the power of life and death over his subjects, but whose reign, whose power and authority is in reality very limited. It's limited in its extent. It does not extend uh, to Egypt where Joseph can flee to keep his baby safe and it's limited in duration. He dies and his plans and threats die with him. But what we see is that there are always other Herods. Always others to take his place. His son Archelaus comes to power, a son who shares the memory and character of his father and that same insecurity. So Joseph, instead of living in Judea, goes to Galilee. So one king, whose love and of his own power, his determination to ensure his own security, made him terrible, cruel and brutal. Whose love of what he was always going to lose to death his power and life and riches made his reign a cause of death to many. Now, while Herod was a real king, he's also a type of despotic power, of human rulers who make their will and authority ultimate and seek to subordinate all others to their will. And, of course, it never ends well, for they claim the authority of God, godlike authority, without God's power or wisdom or mercy or life. But the sad truth is, and this is in a sense why I'm interested in it, is that there's a little bit of Herod in us all. Because like Herod, we are all children of Adam. And what we see in Herod is Adam's ambition pursued without restraint. Adam's ambition was to be like God. But what is it to be like God? Well, we creatures think that it's being king, ruler of your own life, to have your life not governed by God's word, not to have to acknowledge his authority, but to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, to live accountable only to ourselves. Adam's sin has made an idol of the creature's will and we are willing worshippers. In Herod, you get a clear picture of what that idolatry means. A license for lying and violence to get others to serve your will, destruction of life to secure your own life and rule. Now, not many of us have Herod's opportunities to enforce our will, but the idolatry of our wills still shows itself. The verbal badgering of others until they conform. The bullying the emotional manipulation of withholding or giving favour to get our own way. Don't we see that around us? Controlling abusive husbands, manipulative friends, arrogant bosses, self-protective lying, the withdrawal of love. Don't we see it from time to time in ourselves where we choose to do what we think is right in defiance of what God says is right to keep ourselves our pleasures, our powers, well, our safety, our sense of security to keep ourselves safe. Yet in Herod we also get a picture of how this old, how this idolatry, this idol disappoints and betrays. See, what was Herod's life? Insecurity and fearfulness. 
and the loneliness of someone who had to remove all threat to his rule. And that's actually true. Even if you keep your worship of your own will within polite boundaries, others are there to serve you or they're a threat. You use or you fear. And where is life-giving intimacy in that? But more, worshippers of this idol face the grief of losing all they have given so much to obtain. For this idol can't give life. And the worshippers know that they must lose in death all they love. That death will deny their will and all that it plans and values. And we, though we think it's life to be our own gods, our own rulers, it's actually miserable to try and be God where you are not. Herod is terrible, but he is just extreme Adam. Where Adam's desires to be like God, to rule his own life, is taken to its logical outcome by a creature who is not God, not eternal in life, not almighty, not perfect in wisdom. Our idolatry of our own wills is fearful, enmeshed in lies, destructive of the life of others, and ends in death. But there is another king in this story the one born king of the Jews, Jesus, who by the time the wise men arrive in Bethlehem is a young infant from Herod's action somewhere under two years old. So despite the nativity scenes, uh, this is after the visit of the shepherds and they're not all at the manger together, which is probably a relief considering the size of those houses. Right, Uh, where Herod on his throne with his advisors and his troops embodies power, This king's a picture of weakness and frailty, even more so in a rural community with a high infant mortality rate. He's dependent on others. His grasp on life is tenuous. And as we see, his life is insecure. Soon he's on the move, fleeing his enemies, a child with no fixed address, a refugee with no powerful connections. It's hard to get a greater contrast, isn't it, between these two kings. But this child is the born king of promise. He's a king, born a king. He's not waiting to become a king, but is king from birth, the rightful ruler of the Jews, the Lord's people. The magi, the wise men, are right to give him worship and obeisance. And this has reinforced the fact that he's the born king by the religious authorities quoting Micah 5 and 2 Samuel 5 to locate his birthplace. Where will he born? In Bethlehem of Judea. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. That final line from 2 Samuel 5 2 is a promise to David of his rule over Israel which is now applied to David's descendant and the first prophecy Micah 5 speaks of a ruler who will come from David's birthplace his family home Bethlehem this one born king is the promised son of David the one to whom God has given rule over nations and over Israel 
And so the message of chapter 1 of Matthew, the genealogy and Joseph's acceptance, is reinforced by this quotation. Jesus, born in such humble circumstances, not a palace but a house in a rural village, is the son of David, the one to whom God has promised an eternal rule whose birthright is to rule the world. His rule, a gift of God, not something seized and retained by violence. And not only is his person and his right a contrast with Herod's rule, so is the character of his rule as the, as the gospel story makes plain. Uh, when he enters his ministry, we see Jesus is the opposite of Herod. There's no deceit or lying with him. He teaches his followers, for example, to be absolutely truthful, that God is a God of truth who looks for truth in all who are his. Let your yes be your yes and your no, no. Oh, he can say of his teaching that it's completely reliable. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word, says Jesus, will not pass away. Even when on trial for his life, he is committed to the truth. For this purpose, says Jesus, I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. There is no embrace of lies and deception to support and sustain Jesus' rules. He will not lie to save his life. And that means that Jesus' reign is one of trust-building, freeing truth. You see, we need truth, words that we can rely on to live freely. As many have found with the restrictions on travel, uh, bringing confu confusion, as, as, as we found with these restrictions, confusion and inconsistency make life difficult enough. But lies destroy trust and confidence in acting, create doubt and uncertainty, impoverish our lives. Lies can even kill you. You will not die, said the devil. But they did, and we do. But Jesus always speaks the truth. He reigns through his true world, word, and so he builds trust and confidence, freedom among his people. And his reign is not one, not one of murder, of taking life to protect and sustain his own life. It's one of love and giving his life to give life to others. Jesus taught, remember, that to be children of the Father, you had to love even your enemies. And he lived as he taught. He reigns that way. He lives and reigns as the true son of his Father by doing the Father's will, acting in love to all, seeking their good, not his own, even seeking forgiveness from the cross for those who killed him. Father, forgive them, he prayed. Now, this is not fear and resentment expressing itself in murderous hatred. This is not Herod. This is life-giving love. And Jesus was on that cross willingly. Freely, you see, unlike Adam and Herod, he didn't think that being God was doing what you wanted. He said, not my will but yours be done. He willed to do the Father's will giving his life as a ransom for many, giving his life to set many, all who believe the gospel, free from sin and death. And he was on that cross, Make no doubt, have no doubt about that, he was on that cross as king. 
His mocking enemies spoke better than they knew when they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Or put that as the title on his cross. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. You see, that dying is the expression of his reign, for in it he does what a true king does. He destroys his enemies and saves his people. Jesus' reign is one of truth and love, life-giving, not death-bringing, one that frees from fear and death. And appearing so weak, it's actually the reign of greatest power, almighty power, the reign of one who has life in himself. This king is one whose rule knows no limit. Uh, From the outset, it's actually made plain that creation itself serves the revealing of his reign, isn't it? The star brings those wise men to Jesus, herald his coming and birth. Now, whether that star was a supernova or planets in alignment or a comet, all of these have been ideas that have been suggested. The point's clear. Creation serves him. Serves him at his birth, just as creation itself acknowledges him as its ruler at his death when the sky turns black. Jesus' rule extends to all that's created and it extends to all people. Uh, These wise men uh, are Gentiles, non-Jews. Their their coming and worship is actually an an acknowledgement that the king of the Jews is the king over all. Ask of me, said the Lord to this king, to the Messiah in Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And this king's rule is not limited in time, in its duration, for death cannot bring it to its end, only reveal the greatness of his power. The resurrection shows this king has power over the most fearsome weapon of his rivals, their ability to take this life. And so he has broken their power and the power of the devil who stands behind their rule of lies and murder and having destroyed all opposition, this king continues to reign in life always. There is no limit to Jesus' authority. As the risen Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, the other king the born king, whose rule is the gift of God, his by right, who rules by coming to do the Father's will, not his own, whose reign is characterised by truth and love, by a wisdom and might that surpasses anyone's, whose reign brings the freedom and confidence of the truth, the eternal life of those freed from death to all who embrace it, whose authority is over all and forever. Now, I was thinking of saying at this point, here are two kings. Which king do you want to be king over your life? But actually, that is not the gospel. You see, you and I don't have a choice of who is king. Oh, yes, Jesus is the better king, the one you should choose. But actually, the great good news is Jesus is king now. He's not waiting to become king and certainly you don't make him king by your choice. 
The gospel doesn't even ask, will you acknowledge Jesus, the true king, the better king? No, it actually commands. It summonses. Summonses you and I to repent. That is to acknowledge reality, to acknowledge that Jesus is the true and only king, the one with authority over each of us, the authority to judge and forgive, to give life and or to execute judgment. It summons us to abandon the, from the start the pretense that your will rules, that your will creates reality and decides who is king. That's not the truth. The truth is God rules through his son and his will creates reality and God calls you into in the gospel to acknowledge Jesus as he is king. And so if you have not done that, you should do it today. And if you have, well, you should be determined to keep living under his reign, directed by his authority. Don't, in desiring to keep ruling your own life, in the desire to be accountable only to yourself, to preserve the idol of your own will, don't fall for the lie Herod embraced. Herod thought he could deny this born king, usurp his place, delete him from history, from the life of this world and continue to reign unchallenged. He thought he could kill the one the scriptures, God's word, declared to be the living God's chosen king. Now, why did he, a creature, think he could successfully resist the almighty God, the God who had life in himself? Well, it's because Herod was in love with the idol of his will. And Herod had become habituated to living by the lie, Adam's lie, that he was like God, God's equal. Though all the evidence, his fear, his lies, his destruction of life told otherwise, Herod was blinded by his lie. And so all he did just increased his condemnation. Are you so in love with the idol of your will that you think that somehow if you block your ears to what the risen Jesus commands, you've removed him from the scene? Or that your determined fault-finding with the Christians you know will relieve you of the burden of taking Jesus seriously? Or that choosing to reject Jesus so you can do whatever you wish means that you'll somehow never have to deal with him? None of that will stop Jesus from being king, the one with authority over all, the one who is true and will do what he says in his gospel. Either give life to those who repent, who turn their back on the worshipping their own will and believe the gospel, that is, acknowledge the gospel is true, that he's died for our sins and risen, and then live trusting Jesus' promises, listening to and obeying Jesus. He'll be true to that. Oh, but he'll also be true to what he's said, that he will give up to judgment and its outcome, eternal death and hell, those who persevere in rebellion against God. Don't be deceived. Herod's path is the path of failure. There is no future in it and its present is also miserable, lonely, fearful, insecure, sustained by untruth and violence. The good news is that in a world full of Herods, 
Jesus is the true king, the better king by far, who does pardon rebels who turn back to him. So be like those wise men. Their worship, a recognition of Jesus' rightful rule, their joy, a joy in finding the true king, the king of the Jews, the king of all who will reign in justice and righteousness. And think about it. They went to so much effort to bow before that young boy Jesus, guided by a star. We have it so much easier. We meet Jesus in his gospel, not as a baby full of promise, but as a tested and triumphant king, victor over death and keeper of all his promises. The power of his life flowing in the river of his spirit now to all who trust him, the reality of his love for those who don't deserve it, demonstrated beyond doubt in the cross. The truth of his offer of pardon proved over centuries in so many lives. What joy to worship Jesus, who gives us truth and love, pardon and life. What joy to be wise like those wise men in honouring him, now by listening to him and doing all that he has taught. So let me encourage you, live securely. Build what will last by your trusting obedience, what will be kept by God. And where many still live under the bondage of their idolatry of their own wills, loving their power and control to their own destruction, or where many live oppressed by petty despots, will you share the good news of the true king? For he is the king of all, the better king by far, the forgiving and life-giving king whose rule is joy and peace. It is love to call people to repent and believe the gospel as God does. He commands us to repent and believe. It's love to call people from turn, to turn from death, the death of rebellion, to life, eternal life, by confessing Jesus as he is, Lord and King. And that's actually what our good King Jesus calls us to do to make disciples, followers himself from all nations. And so we should be doing that if we're believers, individually and collectively, as we have opportunity. And in God's grace, today is a day of opportunity. There are still opportunities. And one of those, because as Clinton said, we're going to be farewelling some people today, is church planting. Church planting is about making disciples by sharing the good news of the true king and gathering those whom God calls to himself through the gospel into a community of believers who can witness together, as we do, to the goodness of life lived under Jesus' rule. So today we will be farewelling Sam and Beck, Rachel and Josh, Kadem and Hannah, who are leaving us today to join the Donnybrook Church Plant that will start next Sunday under Ben and Tanya Collada's leadership. Now, one of our opportunities is to support them in their going, to pray for them, to stay in touch with them, and as a congregation, to support our giving to the Property Development Fund, which is the fund used to buy property for church plants. And let me say, as a church, we know how useful it is to have property. But farewelling them also reminds us that there is actually a cost to love, 
There's a cost to the commitment to make Jesus known for them and us. There's the emotional cost, the grief of saying goodbye to people you've fellowshiped with for years, that coming to church and feeling the absence of those you love. And that's true for them and us. Oh, there's the cost of of the loss of their labour of love amongst us, the cost of filling holes that will be left by their departure. That's for us. Oh, for them, there's the cost of new and extra work, which some of us know so well, setting up, taking down, welcoming strangers into their lives, a continual turnover for the first few years. Oh, there's a cost. Oh, there's a financial cost too. There's the cost to us of the loss of their giving and of the support of the property development fund of which we give, to which we give 5% of our giving. But when you see how good a king Jesus is and the cost he paid to bring us under his life-giving rule, his rule of freedom and peace and joy, and when you see inherit the misery of our idolatry of our own wills. Don't you want to pay that cost cheerfully and gladly? But, of course, church planting is just one way of doing what we're called to do. Praise the Lord, we've got many ways in our church. There's, we can support and encourage those involved in the work of AFES amongst us. That's important. We can work together in Kids Club and GSF, mainly music and youth group. We can encourage each other in our growth groups. We can seize the opportunities for conversations about Jesus with each other and with those who do not yet believe. Many ways we can make disciples. But having said that, I suspect that some of us, perhaps many of us, at the end of 2020, some of us with disrupted holidays, are still feeling tired that the lockdowns have knocked our confidence. We're uncertain, a bit flat because of the persistence of the virus and its constant threat to the way we live. And yes, added to that, maybe some of us are a bit sad uh, to be farewelling our brothers and sisters. And so we find in ourselves sometimes a hesitancy to get back into our ministry. We start to dread the expenditure of energy that that involves. But let me encourage you, seeing the goodness of the true king, to renew your commitments to make disciples of our Lord Jesus. You see, in the end, that commitment doesn't depend on our perception of our own energy or on whether we feel up to it. That commitment depends on love and then trusting, trusting as God had said, that his grace is sufficient and that he will show himself mighty, mighty to save in our weakness. Love and trust, faith in his promise, and yes, hope that in the Lord our labour will not be in vain. Inherit, see the misery of rebellion, the misery of the old idolatry of our wills, And then in the gospel, see the wonder and glory of the true king and his reign, life and love and truth. And think, now's a good time, as I'm a believer in Jesus, 
someone who lives by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, now's a good time to renew in my heart my commitment to do what Jesus says, to be a disciple who makes disciples. And having attended to my heart, to then order my program for the year ahead so that that is a work in which I share. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the love that would send him into the world for sinners. We thank you for the power that can send him as a fragile infant into a world full of hatred and death and yet be confident that he will save his people. We thank you for the wisdom of his way of saving, a way that gives life, not takes life. And we thank you for the joy of finding forgiveness and life in trusting him. We thank you for Jesus and we pray in your mercy that we would be faithful followers, people who do all that he has taught, people who are willing to make disciples by teaching all he's taught and preaching the gospel, willing to encourage each other to persevere and willing to call others to know and follow him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.